once again to America's Constitution. So today is a big week in Amar land because it's the release of the words that made us, America's Constitutional Conversation, 1760 to 1840. Congratulations, Akil. Thank you, and I quite literally could not have done it without you. Well, of course, we all know that that isn't true, but nevertheless... It's literally true. And unlike the, next, uh, the younger generation, I use literally, well, literally. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, um, we're going to uh, have some readings today, and uh, it's actually very appropriate because part of the point of uh, the words that made us is to give what we've described as a wide-angle view of history and to help see events in the context of other events. And, of course, our earlier podcasts uh, began with a series of bullets dodged, talking about the aftermath of the election of 2020. So today we're going to look back at another very fraught election and see what we can learn about our current dilemmas uh, through that and perhaps vice versa as well. And most of what I'm going to um, recite is basically word for word from the book. I've tweaked it just a bit um, uh, uh, in, uh, uh, for, for today's purposes, just uh, to highlight the connection um, between the events I narrate in the book and the events especially of, of uh, this January. The, the book obviously went to print before uh, January, um, but... Uh, um, uh, so this is um, an excerpt uh, on uh, America's first peaceful, but just barely, transfer of power. And uh, before we start, I just want to uh, point out to the uh, loyal listeners of, of our podcast that there are some uh, sections here that, especially at the beginning, that sound like a, uh, a, a bit of a repetition of some of the things that we've said about presidential succession and so forth, but they're really for, for background and briefs, and there's plenty of juicy new stuff to come very quickly, so hang in there. Thanks, Andy. The events of 1800 to 1801, America's first peaceful transfer of power from one presidential party to another, were in fact far more fraught than is generally understood today, and in myriad respects cast an eerie light on the not entirely peaceful transfer of presidential power in 2020 to 2021. The backstory to this episode, this initial episode of palace intrigue and near mayhem began fittingly enough with the early 1790s rivalry between Jefferson and Hamilton. Who was truly Washington's prime minister? In particular, who should succeed to the presidency if both Washington and Adams were to die, become disabled, or resign? The Constitution's vacancy clause left this question for the federal legislature to decide, quote, Congress may, by law, declare what officer shall then act as president, unquote. The text authorized an ex officio designation, not who, but what, not which person, but what officer, Qua officer would serve as acting president as part of his regular office. In 1791, Jefferson's partisans in Congress, led by Madison, proposed to designate the Secretary of State as the officer next in line, a move that would bolster the status of Thomas Jefferson, who then held that office, and deflate the pretensions of 
then Secretary Alexander, uh, Treasury Secretary Alexander Hamilton. Hamilton's congressional admirer is balked. As a compromise, some propose to designate the Chief Justice, a post then held by the Hamilton leading John Jay. After bouncing between House and Senate and various committees thereof, the bill, as finally adopted in 1792, placed America's top senator, the Senate president pro tempore, first in line, followed by the Speaker of the House. Alas, this was unconstitutional. As Madison and others persuasively pointed out, senators and House members were not, strictly speaking, officers within the letter and spirit of the Constitution's vacancy clause. Only judges and executive officials, those who acted upon private persons and were not mere lawmakers or proper officers for succession purposes. Indeed, Article 1, Section 6 expressly prohibited sitting members of Congress from holding executive or judicial office. And here's the quote from the Constitution. No person holding any office under the United States shall be a member of either house during his continuance in office, unquote. All this set the scene for the post-election drama of 1800 to 1801. The Democratic-Republicans won the election with 73 electoral votes for Jefferson compared to 65 for Adams. But the fledgling party blundered slightly. Under the original Constitution, there was no separate balloting for the vice presidency. Rather, each member of the Electoral College cast two votes for president. The top vote-getter, if backed by a majority of electors, would win the presidency, and whoever came in second in the presidential ballot would become vice president. The Democratic-Republicans aimed to catapult Jefferson into the presidency and his running mate, New Yorker Aaron Burr, into the vice presidential slot. But every Jeffersonian elector also voted for Burr. The party should have designated one elector to throw away his second vote to ensure that Jefferson would outpoint Burr, but somehow failed to do this. Thus, there was a tie at the top, a tie that would need to be untied by the lame duck Federalist-dominated House of Representatives. The House could surely pick Jefferson, the only proper outcome, thought the Jeffersonians. Indeed, this is what the House ultimately did, thanks in no small measure to Hamilton's emphatic appeals to Congressional Federalists on behalf of Jefferson. Hamilton told his correspondents that despite his own fierce feuds with Jefferson and the personal dislike that each man had for the other, the former Secretary of State that is Jefferson, was an honorable and capable public servant committed to his country's welfare. Once in power, Jefferson would, Hamilton hoped, eventually see the Hamiltonian light and govern in a way that would protect America's vital interests at home and abroad. By the way, Hamilton guessed right on this in general. Um, Hamilton told his Federalist allies that Burr, by contrast, was a charming but corrupt wild card who might sell the nation out to the highest bidder merely to line his own pocket. Still, the Federalist-dominated Congress could lawfully pick Burr. Many Jeffersonians considered this scenario underhanded because none of Burr's electors had truly wanted to see him president. From a legal point of view, however, Burr's votes were no different from Jefferson's. If Federalists actually preferred Burr, why shouldn't he win as the consensus candidate? After all, had Federalist electors known long in advance that Adams was a lost cause, 
they could have chosen to vote for Burr in the Electoral College balloting in the several states. Had even a single Federalist so voted, Burr, in fact, would have received more electoral votes than Jefferson and thus would have won under the strict letter of the rules. How was the matter any different if Federalist House members opted to back Burr over Jefferson when allowed to untie the Electoral College tally? If this flipping of their ticket irked Jeffersonians, they had only themselves to blame for having picked Burr as their second man. Even if Burr were selected by the Federalist-dominated House, nothing would stop President Burr from resigning in favor of Vice President Jefferson. Easier still, nothing stopped Burr from publicly urging all House members to endorse Jefferson, mooting any need for post-inaugural heroics. But what if the House failed to pick either Jefferson or Burr? This sounded lawless, but it wasn't really. The Constitution required the House to untie the election under special voting rules reminiscent of the old Articles Confederation. Each state delegation in the House would cast one vote, and the winner would need a majority of state delegations. If a state delegation were equally divided or abstained, its vote would count for zero, not one half for each candidate. It was thus imaginable that neither Jefferson nor Burr would have an absolute majority of state delegation votes in the House, nine out of 16, when Adams's term expired at the end of March 3rd. If so, could Adams simply hold over for a short period past his constitutionally allotted four years? For, say, a month? For a year? For four years? Or would the Succession Act spring to life when Adams's term expired, allowing the Senate's president pro tempore to become the president of all America? Even if that person were a Federalist? And the Federalists had a comfortable majority in the lame duck Senate, the new Senate would be closely divided. What about the argument that the Succession Act was in fact unconstitutional? Enter Horatius, stage right. In a pair of newspaper essays initially published in early January 1801 in the Alexandria Advertiser and widely reprinted in both the Capital Area and beyond, the anonymous Horatius offered a cute way of untying the presidential knot. Horatius argued that the Succession Act was indeed unconstitutional. The lame duck Congress should thus enact, and the lame duck President Adams should sign a new Succession Act designating a proper officer to take charge after March 3rd in the event of a Jefferson Burr House deadlock. Now, Horatius did not explicitly state what officer should now fill the blank but the obvious choice, legally and politically, for the lame duck Federalists was the Secretary of State. After all, he was the highest-ranking officer, except for the arguable possibility of the Treasury Secretary and the Chief Justice. But the position of Chief Justice was vacant in early January. And although Horatius said none of this, he didn't need to. The sitting Secretary of State in early 1801 just happened to be the Federalist's most popular and able politician, Jefferson's old rival and first cousin once removed, John Marshall. It was an elegant and brilliant idea, a political and legal stroke of genius, evil genius from a Jeffersonian perspective. But whose genius idea was it to crown John Marshall? 
Who was this Horatius? Most likely, according to modern scholars, John Marshall himself. Well, that's certainly delicious, isn't it? Um, uh, uh, so modern scholars believe that it's John Marshall. Uh, on what basis do they believe, other than just, you know, it, it makes sense that it would be him, but sure, other than that. Sure, because he benefits. You know, who benefits? Yeah. Uh, if I knew Latin, I'd, I'd remember, I'd, 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 I'd repeat the phrase. Okay. It's uh, qui bono. Thank you, Andy. Okay, I, kn- I knew I could count on you. Okay, so, um, uh, so he, and Marshall, of course, does benefit, um, but um, the leading biographer of Marshall is a man named Albert, Albert Beveridge. He has a four-volume biography of John Marshall. And by the way, Marshall himself was in life a biographer. He wrote the first important biography of George Washington, long before Parson Weems and, and the cherry tree and all of that. Um, now, in volume two of The Life of Marshall, Beveridge is um, talking about uh, this exact sort of period of time, and here's what he says. The argument is, ab- um, he, he's describing um, the argument of Horatius. Um, Horatius stated uh, his position with great ability. The argument is able and convincing, and it is so perfectly in Marshall's method of reasoning and peculiar style of expression that his authorship would appear to be reasonably certain. So Beveridge deduces that just because he, he's very familiar with how Marshall writes and, and thinks and expresses himself and says, wow, this looks a lot like Marshall. So that's one bit of evidence. And, of course, Marshall is the, the beneficiary. Um, my colleague Bruce Ackerman, a uh, constitutional historian at Yale Law School, um, has uh, done a lot more um, background digging and come up with a lot more circumstantial evidence uh, for Marshall's authorship, which he presents uh, in his book, uh, The Failure of the Founding Fathers. Uh, and um, some of it is circumstantial evidence about um, which newspapers published it first and where they were and who would have been in that neighborhood at the time. Marshall, it turns out, um, uh, did have connections to those newspapers. Later in Marshall's life, he actually, as Chief Justice, uh, publishes anonymous op-eds that basically um, put forth the, the Marshall position on, on various issues. So it, it it's in keeping with... Um, Marshall's style to slyly place certain self-serving op-eds. So um, that's basically um, uh, uh, the basis. Now, um, Ackerman also actually commissioned um, someone to do a kind of a computer analysis of um, uh, 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 Horatius's essay and compared them to a kind of um, word analysis of uh, Marshall's, uh, of things that we know that Marshall wrote. Um, so this isn't just like Beveridge saying, oh, this sounds to me like Marshall, but, but a sophisticated computer program. Uh, uh, and it was um, suggestive but ultimate and supportive of the Marshall is Horatius hypothesis, but ultimately not conclusive. Now, um, you said that Horatius uh, said that the Succession Act was unconstitutional. Did he give a reason? Is it some of the same reasons that we... Uh... 
Indeed, yes. So, you know, in fact, maybe I have Marshall on my side. I definitely have Madison on my side because Madison did make all these arguments that was unconstitutional earlier, way back in 1791-92. And um, in terms of, you know, what, what we see here is some kind of destabilization from this bad, you know, Presidential Succession Act. And we've talked about, you know, why, you know, that should be reformed. But really, the whole process of going to the House is, is somewhat fraught. This notion of, of state delegations, each having one vote, you know, it's so undemocratic and so unhouse-like. It's more like the Senate, you know, in some ways. Now, I, I doubt that that could easily be reformed without a constitutional amendment. But I, I think you're talking about this. So there are two different issues. One is just the, the, the contraption that is the Electoral College and all of its... Um, uh, quirks. Um, and on that, as I mentioned in the excerpt, um, uh, when the House is uh, untying uh, an initial tie in the Electoral College, which they've basically done twice, 1800-1801, um, and although it wasn't a tie, there was no definitive first-round winner in 1824, as between John Quincy Adams, Andy Jackson, um, and uh, a guy named William Crawford, um, the fourth person, um, didn't make the final round, uh, Henry Clay. Um, and it was a, a bullet dodged in 1876. Uh, um, uh, so the House really, um, on two occasions, has had to um, weigh in uh, one state, one vote. Uh, and that model, as I mentioned, is uh, highly reminiscent of the Articles of Confederation um, is much more like the Articles of Confederation than is, for example, the Senate, because the Senate votes per capita. Um, but in the Articles, you voted UN style as a, a state block, um, and that's what happens. You, you're voting as a state block uh, under the Electoral College a tie-breaking mechanism, which operated in 1800-1801 and, um, and in 1824-1825. So that's one set of issues. Um, and you, of course, know that I'm trying to generally avoid ties in the Electoral College and all the rest um, by suggesting, oh, we could have an, um, uh, an improvised um, uh, direct presidential election system uh, through things like the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact. I at least said we should think about um, that, to, um, that, that way of, of just uh, avoiding this uh, clunky Electoral College mechanism. And another clunkiness is it's the lame duck house that's doing this, not the incoming house. Remember, it's the, the repudiated Federalists who are making the decision, um, uh, uh, and they've been electorally repudiated, and yet they, they're hanging around. So, so it connects to our Instagov stuff, and, and we've talked about the Electoral College, um, and uh, um, uh, so um, there's all of that. But then the other thing that you identified is... Um, clunkly kludgy presidential succession act um, we've talked you and i mainly about the bad presidential succession act we have on the books today the act of 1947 passed under president truman um, but its precursor there were two previous statutes and one was actually a sensible statute involving uh, that, that provided for cabinet succession um, from in the 1880s 1883 um, but the first succession statute, the 1792 one, is a lot like the current one, with the difference being 
1792 statute, which Madison opposed, which Horatio, on constitutional grounds, which Horatio is now saying is unconstitutional, and Horatio is probably John Marshall, very much like the current one um, in certain respects, but that one put Senate President pro tem first and House Speaker second uh, um, uh, um, in, uh, for statutory succession, and the current um, statute, 1947 statute, flips those. It's um, Speaker of the House first and Senate President pro tem second, and, and the current one provides for a longer line of succession, which the 1792 Act um, didn't. But one of the things that we talked about, remember, I, th- I can't remember, we counted up to 16, 17, 18 uh, uh, different uh, um, uh, ways in which the, the current Succession Act is really problematic. I, I use the legal term imbecilic, um, which is a word that lawyer types use all the time. Um, uh, that uh, You see the real problem here, because if, there's e- if it's even arguably unconstitutional, and the current one is arguably unconstitutional, if I've got the likes of John Marshall and James Madison on my side, not to mention all the subsequent constitutional uh, developments, uh, the 25th Amendment and, um, and, and so on, that um, add further fuel to the fire um, of uh, uh, the argument for unconstitutionality. But even if it's just debatable, in the moment when the act is actually being triggered or about to be triggered, uncertainty about constitutionality leads can lead to all sorts of political mischief. As we saw in January 2021, politicians sometimes behave very, very badly if they think they can get away with something. Um, and uh, so, and especially when it's for all the marbles for the presidency, which is such a powerful institution, which was one of our big themes in the, our first three podcasts, um, just how powerful the presidency is. And in our conversation, for example, with Bob Woodward um, a while back. So the presidency is so important and politicians in the moment are tempted to, to cheat or to play fast and loose if they can, when it's for all the marbles and there genuinely is constitutional uncertainty about that and that's just what you don't want um, at these fraught moments of um, contested election or um, um, a double death um, and and the need for statutory succession. Well, exactly. I mean, in 2021, it was actually preposterous. There really wasn't any uncertainty that any right. rational person would, would consider. And still. And still we had, you know, <laughs> the walls came tumbling down. So in, in the context of an actually fraught uh, uh, and prob- almost certainly unconstitutional, if not just crazy, uh, Presidential Succession Act. I mean, you would have had you know Mike Pompeo banging down the doors of the Supreme Court, saying, "I'm the president, not Nancy Pelosi." Correct, because yeah. he's the because sec- he's the pr- the what officer, um, and she's not a proper officer. Absolutely, and in fact, as you know. I wrote a Hollywood screenplay on this several years ago, maybe about eight or nine years ago now. A treatment, and, in all uh, fairness. Oh, yes. no, was, yeah. And then, a, and then a, oh, right, you're not, it wasn't a screenplay, right? It's a treatment. Mm-hmm. It was um, um, a, a plot summary. I take it back. Um, and, and today it would look so unimaginative, but back then I thought it was very interesting and edgy. Indeed. Oh, but alas, Hollywood did not. So on to the uh, next part of the reading then. Okay. Things get even crazier, if that's possible. But wait, there's more. Even if Marshall was somehow not Horatius, Marshall surely agreed with Horatius. 
In mid-January 1801, James Monroe sent Jefferson a letter bristling with concern. Quote, It is said here that Marshall has given an opinion in conversation that in case nine states should not unite in favor of one of the persons chosen uh, by the Electoral College, that is, Jefferson or Burr, the legislature may appoint a president till another election is made, and that intrigues are carrying on to place us in that situation. Unquote. In an earlier letter to Jefferson, Monroe had also identified Marshall as the likely beneficiary of the Horatius Gambit. Quote, Some strange reports are circulating here of the views of the federal party in the present desperate state of affairs. It is said they are resolved to prevent the designation by the House of Representatives of the person to be president and that they mean to commit the power by a legislative act to John Marshall or some other person till another election, unquote. Jefferson responded by treating the situation as 1776 all over again, rallying his troops and rattling his saber. In mid-February 1801, he told Monroe that he, and this is a quote, thought it best to declare openly and firmly, one and all, that the day such a succession act passed, the middle states would arm, and that no such usurpation even for a single day should be submitted to, unquote. This was not casual chit-chat. In 1801, Monroe was the sitting governor of Virginia, which of course bordered on the new national capital city, what we call Washington, D.C. Jefferson was telling Monroe to ready his militia to march on Washington with weapons, and Monroe was listening carefully. Jefferson's were the words of a sloppy, brash, and trigger-happy politico. What was his legal warrant for threatening to incite states near the national capital, the middle states, to take up arms against the central government? The Horatius Gambit was surely sharp dealing, given that it aimed to give the presidency to neither Jefferson nor Burr, but how was it illegal? The Federalists themselves had created the mess that Horatius slyly offered to tidy up. Jefferson himself and his party had picked the ethically challenged Aaron Burr to be under their own plan, a heartbeat away from the presidency. If Burr were supremely honorable, he could simply declare, publicly and unequivocally, that he would not accept the presidency even if offered the post by the lame-duck Federalist-dominated House. Had Burr made such a clear and public declaration, it's impossible to imagine that the House could have deadlocked. Jefferson would have become the president by a process of elimination, much as if Burr were dead. Imagine, say, an early 1801 duel in which Hamilton killed Burr. <laughs> to his credit, Burr did not actively lobby in his own behalf. He did not hasten to Washington City to meet with the House members, nor did he make any promises by letter or via intermediaries in exchange for House votes. But he did not, as he easily could have done, emphatically and openly disavow willingness to be selected over his senior partner. So you've got the uh, vice president not quite doing what the uh, president, or w erstwhile president, um, would have liked him to, to do, right? I right, mean, so it's not quite sitting president against right. sitting vice president that's Pence against Trump quite, but it's 
vice presidential running mate not quite being on board with presidential running mate. Now, remember, of course, the actual sitting vice president is Jefferson, who's running against the actual sitting president, who's Adams. So, whoa. And the Sedition Act is lying around there somewhere as well. Because Adams has signed his name to a law that basically is making all of Jefferson's um, uh, 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 partisan uh, critiques of the administration illegal. So, you know, you give Burr uh, some credit here, but uh, he wasn't exactly known for his uh, high character, was he? Um, and we come back again to a point that we've made again and again, uh, beginning at no later than our third podcast about the bullet not dodged and how, at least in, in my view, and, and Andy, I think you're with me on this, that Trump didn't have the proper character to be present, how important character is. And of course... Bob Woodward's with us too. Absolutely. I mean, you took the words right out of my mouth to borrow from Meatloaf. Uh, uh, so um, uh, that was a big Woodward theme. Uh, and Burr was a person of low character. He and, and, and what made him low character? That he was in it for himself, for his own financial gain. That's what the concern was. And that he... Um, uh, um, had did not have the same kind of track record of virtuous service to the Republic. And he actually at least fought in the Revolutionary War, but he didn't really have the same kind of extraordinary track record of virtuous service to the Republic that people like Washington and Adams and Jefferson and Hamilton and Franklin had. So, so we're seeing themes in, in the early period that are resonant today. Who actually has given his life for uh, uh, and sacrificed his own private um, uh, concerns um, uh, for the public good, um, who seems to be basically in it just for himself and his own um, financial benefits. And, and you know, uh, Burr, um, you know, uh, and, and lots of people think Trump. Indeed. Um, uh, you know, you are and are you. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so, um, uh, and, okay, so uh, let's take Alexander Hamilton. He does not like what Jefferson stands for on all sorts of issues. Burr is actually, because Burr is a trimmer, Burr on various issues might actually promise the Federalists what they want. But Hamilton says it's not about someone who's just going to promise us the platform we want because there are going to be possibly new issues to rise. It's about the, the character of the office holder. And even though I don't like Jefferson, he's a person of character. He, he, he's a patriot, um, and Burr is not. So that's so similar to the things that, that Bob Woodward um, and, uh, uh, was talking with us about. Um, um, Woodward defended uh, Ford, not so much saying Ford made the right substantive decision. He did it for the right reason. Yes, you know, when he pardoned Richard Nixon. And he did yeah. it for patriotic right, reasons. Right, patriotic reason. What, you know, yes. In other words, it may not have been the right reason in the sense that his reasoning might have been wrong, but... It, the reasoning was patriotic reasoning. It, it was virtuous. It wasn't self-interested. It was about what was good for America. Um, 
And that's a very old-fashioned, not do I like this result, do I not like this result, is this the, the good policy result or the bad policy result, but is it uh, um, the result of a good character? Of, of, is, it, is it motivated by patriotic reasoning, by trying to think not what's good for Gerald Ford or what's good for Donald Trump or what's good for Aaron Burr personally? Or what's, or what's good for my party, even. Yes, what's good for America. Mm-hmm. So that's quite an amusing uh, alternate history you have there about uh, <laughs> do with duel with Hamilton killing Burr. Obviously, the the references to the uh, notorious uh, killing of Hamilton. Um, and actually, um, it, Hamilton in this earlier period is coming a little unglued. Um, Washington is in his grave, um, and and some of the people whom he had kind of held in check, including Hamilton, are beginning to, to lose their, their, more, their bearings without Washington as the pole star. Um, and in fact, in um, late 1800, I, there are a couple of letters um, uh, that Hamilton sends to the pres- sitting president of the United States, the elderly John Adams, a letter of August 1st, and on October 1st, 1800, in which the, the young and vigorous um, a, a Hamilton sends letters, accusatory letters, to the sitting president of the United States, basically challenging him to a duel. Um, here's the letter, and, and Adams doesn't reply, and Hamilton is kind of wondering, like, can I challenge the sitting president of the United States to a duel? Is that permissive? And he's, he's much older than I am. He's not really a dueler. I'm a dueler. He's not really, he's a, he's a fat old man. Um, this is a whole new level of uh, constitutional question. We've been wondering whether you can impeach or indict him, much see, less... Uh, see, see, you didn't know this. Okay, so this is good. So um, uh, I, I, I briefly allude to it in the book. Um, so uh, on August, and listen, if our audience is interested... You can all find all this stuff yourself in 30 seconds. Go to the National Archives Founders Online, and you can have um, word-searchable access to all the letters to and from the leading founders, uh, especially the big six, uh, Washington, Franklin, Adams, Jefferson, Madison, Hamilton. So here's a letter of Alexander Hamilton of August 1st, 1800. Sir... It has been repeatedly mentioned to me that you have, on different occasions, asserted the existence of a British faction in this country, embracing a number of leading or influential characters of the Federal Party, uh, that's the Federalists, and that you have sometimes named me, at other times plainly alluded to me, as one of the dis- this description of persons. So he's basically saying, people have told me, you're saying basically that I'm not a loyal American, I'm a kind of a British mole. That's basically, you know. Um, uh, and I've likewise been assured of late, uh, um, uh, that, that of late some of your, your, your warm adherents, your, your friends, for election purpo- electioneering purposes, have employed a corresponding language. So first paragraph. Sir, I've heard, I've heard reports that you and your minions have been um, defaming me, have, uh, have been bad-mouthing me. Um, and then the, next, the second paragraph, it's a pretty short letter saying, like, if this is true, you know, I expect you as a gentleman to, to you know, 
give me your reasons for this. What, what, what evidence do you have for, for these um, uh, uh, insinuations? Um, and that, are, you know, are you willing to sort of stand by them or disavow them? Uh, uh, you know, I, I await your, your response. Okay. Um, so that's August 1st. Pistols at dawn. <laughs> uh, no response um, from, from Adams. Three months later, October 1st, a frustrated um, Hamilton writes him a second letter. Sir, the time which has elapsed since my letter of the 1st of August was delivered to you precludes the further expectation of an answer. Like, I've been waiting, and it looks like you're not going to respond. From this silence, I will draw no inference, nor will I presume to judge the fitness of silence on such occasion, and this is the first time he mentions Adams' status, on the part of the chief magistrate of a republic toward a citizen who, without a stain, has discharged so many important public trusts. Like, okay, you're president, but I'm former secretary of, of the treasury, and you know I'm a war hero too, we both done a lot of had a lot of service to the republic and gee you'd expect i'd at least get some sort of you know answer some sort of satisfaction from you um so she's saying but it looks like i'm not going to get an answer so and and he's alluding to the awkwardness of uh you know a, a, an actual duel i suppose given that the fellow's chief magistrate so so you you see him kind of struggling in his own mind what do i do now okay but this, mu- but thus much, I will affirm, and he basically goes on just like, like anyone who says, you know, this about me, you know, it's a base and wicked and cruel calumny, um, destitute of uh, even plausible pretext to excuse the folly or mask the depravity which must have dictated it. It's like anyone who says that about me, you know, is base, wicked, foolish, a defamer. Um, um, and uh, so he kind of leaves it at that, saying, you know, up yours. <laughs> and that's, right. that's October 1st, 1800, you know, right before what would today be, the, you know, affect the November elections. But by this point, it's pretty clear that Adams is, has lost um, uh, to the Jeffersonians because, um, because Burr beat Hamilton um, in of the electioneering process, Burr is campaigning for the the Jefferson Burr ticket, um, and Hamilton is actually trying to campaign for the Adams ticket, even though he doesn't love Adams. He's a Federalist, okay? And um, it's pretty clear that the election is going to come down to New York, um, in certain ways, at New York State, and within New York, it's going to be determined by New York City, and basically, um, it's going to be determined by kind of. Um, a street politics in Manhattan, and uh, Burr uh, uh, outshines Hamilton, um, uh, and and so it's pretty clear that the Jeffersonians are going to end up with more electoral votes. What isn't clear in in, in uh, October is the the tie that's going to emerge, and then all the complexities that that arise thereafter. So, is do you feel that um, part of what's going on with these letters is? That uh, Burr is, uh, or and or Adams, well, I don't know. I mean, who's who's defaming Hamilton? I mean, Hamilton's helping Adams. Yes, but Adams is never satisfied. Okay, mm-hmm. so because Ad- Hamilton has also written a pamphlet saying, 
you know, Adams really isn't worthy to be president, but you should vote for him anyway because um, that's what our party basically um, uh, 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 agreed to. Um, but deep down, he actually likes the vice presidential candidate for the Federalists, um, uh, um, uh, um, a guy from South Carolina named Pinkney. Pinkney. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Thomas, not um, Charles Coatsworth. So, um, so, oh, it's the, the politics of this era are so interesting. So. Hamilton obviously doesn't love Adams, and Adams doesn't love Hamilton, and Hamilton doesn't love Burr, you know, who's basically beat him, and Burr doesn't love Hamilton, and Hamilton definitely doesn't love Jefferson, and there and Jefferson, you know, right back at you, and Jefferson is not so happy with Adams, even though he's the vice president of Adams. So, so you know, no one likes anyone else, it seems, except Jefferson is. Um, joined at the hip by Madison. So Madison's always basically, you know, the Madison-Jefferson team is very strong, you know, as is, let's say, the John Abigail team, okay, being very strong. So the complex frenemy relationships at the founding, the, the, um, the alliances and the rivalries uh, are, are fascinating to trace, and that is something that I try to do um, in this book, and at the end of the day, um, it is very revealing that uh, ha- Hamilton likes Burr on a personal level. They, there's not a deep animosity be- between them, uh, but and and he doesn't like J- Jefferson. Um, um, but at the end of the day, um, he just thinks that um, Burr is corrupt and. Jefferson has the good of the country at, at heart, and that's the most important thing. And Jeff- Jefferson has more competence and more of a track record of public service. Um, his uh, critique of Adams isn't quite so much on policy grounds, because actually on policy grounds, um, he and Adams have a lot in common, but he thinks Adams has the wrong temperament. He, he He's just too flighty and mercurial. So so you see in all this um, uh, really interesting uh, issues about the uh, trade-off between, um, uh, let's say, um, uh, character and, and just policy position. Some of that is revealed in the next section here in terms of uh, some of their behavior um, in an earlier situation. Ah, yes, a really interesting uh, relationship, the frenemy relationship between Jefferson and Adams, who, remember, um, worked side by side in 1776 uh, to get the Declaration of Independence adopted um, uh, and worked side by side in Paris uh, on behalf of American interests uh, and who um, are going to later start pulling apart in various ways. And actually, we're going to, I'll tell you just a little bit about that in a minute. Four years earlier, that is four years before 1800, Jefferson had acted with more modesty when he had faced a remarkably similar situation. In mid-December 1796, he wrote a letter to his campaign manager, Madison, that ended up yielding enormous political dividends. Mm -hmm. If, upon the unsealing and counting of electoral college ballots in early 1797, he and Adams ended up tied in the contest to succeed the retiring George Washington, thus obliging the House to break the tie. 
he wrote, quote, I pray you, and this is Madison, I pray you and authorize you fully to solicit on my behalf that Mr. Adams may be preferred. He's always been my senior from the commencement of our public life, and the expression of the public will being equal, in case of a tie, this circumstance ought to give him the preference, unquote. As events unfolded, Adams ended up with an outright majority over Jefferson in the Electoral College tally, rendering Jefferson's sacrificial offer moot. And so just by way of reminder, Jefferson is running against Adams in 1796 to replace Washington, and he's writing his campaign manager, Madison, saying, if it ends up being a tie, you know, I think actually we should, you, you should tell people to support Adams over me. Adams himself learned of the letter and was charmed. Jefferson, who had far more self-possession and politesse, generally knew how to play Adams via professions of friendship and fulsome praise of the senior senior statesman's early services to the Republic. In an exultant note to Abigail written on New Year's Day, 1797, John regaled his wife with imagined and inflated details of Jefferson's admiration and deference. Now, here's John writing to Abigail on New Year's Day, 1797, uh, when it's clear that um, he's the winner of the presidency. So many compliments, so many old anecdotes. Dr. Benjamin Rush met Mr. Madison in the street and asked him if he thought Mr. Jefferson would accept the vice presidency. Mr. Madison answered there was no doubt of that. Dr. Rush replied that he had heard some of his friends doubt it. Madison took from his pocket a letter from Mr. Jefferson himself and gave it to the doctor to read. In it, Mr. Jefferson tells Mr. Madison that he had been told there was a possibility of a tie between Mr. Adams and himself. If this should happen, says he, that is Jefferson, I beg of you to use all your influence to procure for me, Jefferson, the second place where Mr. Adams' services have been longer, more constant, and more important than mine, and something more in a complimentary strain about qualifications, etc. Unquote. Perhaps Jefferson in late 1796 knew all along that Adams had more votes, and the letter to Madison was a brilliant ploy designed mainly to flatter Adams and put him off guard. If so, it worked. Or perhaps Jefferson meant everything he said, which was less than Adams recounted. The tale grew in the telling. Either way, it's notable that Aaron Burr did not follow in Jefferson's deferential footsteps, even though Burr, in 1800-1801, had infinitely more reason to yield to his senior partner and teammate Jefferson than Jefferson in 1796 had to yield to his old friend, but now rival, Adams. Yeah, I mean, that's right. Obviously, uh, you know, Adams and Jefferson were different parties as opposed to to uh, to Jeff, to Burr. Yeah, Burr and Jefferson are running mates, and Burr is, you know, being um, not entirely loyal and kind of out for himself, and, and Jefferson doesn't really owe Adams much of anything except they're old friends, and yet, at least if this letter is at face value, he seems to be very deferential. And what he's saying is, Gee, um, if it ends up a tie, 
Adam should should be present. Remember, the person who comes in second, whether because there's a tie or in any uh, and that's broken, um, or for any other reason, the person who comes in second is going to be vice president. And so Jefferson is saying to uh, uh, Madison, if it's a tie, tell our friends to to support Adams. He's my senior. You know, he has seniority. Um, um, and presumably, then then I'll come in second and I'll be the vice president, the loyal vice president. Um, so then why does he run against him in 1800 if because, he's, oh, he's so much, you know. Remember our previous podcast, because in between yeah, the idiot Adams act, right. pushes the Sedition Act, making criticism of Adams a crime, making Jefferson a criminal, making Jefferson's you know, um, um, uh, political supporters criminals. And that's why John Adams is the only president really in the first half century um, after American independence to... Um, not be reelected. Washington's going to get two terms. Jefferson's going to get two terms. Um, um, Madison. Madison's going to get two terms. Monroe's going to get two terms. And um, and that takes us up to their deaths in 1826. Now, of course, John Quincy Adams is also not going to get two terms. But, but Adams is the odd man out. Um, he's literally the odd man out, <laughs> thrown out by the American people because he basically criminalizes this guy who at the beginning was deferring to him as um, the senior partner. Now, it would seem that Adams has a long memory for affronts, but not necessarily such a long memory for, for kindnesses. Well, he does. He He's makes just... up kindness. He, 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 he makes up praise that people bestow upon him. Everyone thought I was the smartest and this and that. Does that sound like anyone you know? Yes, indeed. <laughs> so he's, he's, he's got some issues, as we would say. And, 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 and this uh, a book that we've been talking about is not just about the legal... Uh, and constitutional issues, although there's a lot of that. Um, it's not just about the founding um, and the founding text, um, but it's about the founders and the people who were involved in all this. And and Andy, it's been so much fun because they're, they're such an interesting cast of characters. It's great for the podcast. You know, it's, it's interesting. You know, this is uh, a constitutional podcast, uh, one for, for constitutional nerds, as we've said, and yet we've We've hardly talked about any cases or anything like that. Um, and I guess, you know, with the book out now, I should point out that, uh, of course, you're not going to have cases for the most part until you've got a country. Um, and uh, you know, as you go on in the book, of course, you know, some of the, the great cases do come to light. And some actually cases that perhaps are great, but were not so well known. Uh, and we're going to move from Marshall, the wily politician, um, using the the sock puppet of Horatius or the the pseudonym of Horatius. That's the that's the 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 Marshall that we we've just been talking about, Marshall the Paul. That's Horatius, Horatius. <laughs> but he'll become the the great John Marshall of uh, uh, Supreme Court fame, a Chief Justice uh, fame, the the Marshall that one sees uh, in the Supreme Court building, almost as as large as uh, as as Lincoln in, in his memorial, um, and and that's uh, the story that I tell in in other parts of the book. I'm not sure we're going to do readings from 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 uh, those parts of the book, but there are in effect, in effect two half chapters devoted to John Marshall. One in his relationship to Jefferson, which is part of what we've been talking about today, but the other as chief justice and especially his relationship, um, to, cause he finds a teammate. Um, uh, um, so Jefferson has Madison and Washington has 
Hamilton, oh, well, Marshall finds his junior partner, and his name is Joseph Story. And that's a, and that's a, a tale that's uh, told in some detail in the book. Yes, another Harvard man like Adams. Um, a lot of Harvard men um, and a lot of uh, Virginians. The story of America is a story of really interesting relationships between uh, uh, America's two oldest and proudest colonies. All these um, either rivalries or tag teams. So uh, the first administration is um, Washington Adams, uh, Virginia, Massachusetts. And then it's Adams Jefferson, Massachusetts, Virginia. Um, And then later on, it's going to be um, uh, Jefferson Gary, uh, Elbridge Gary, he's a Massachusetts guy. Madison Gary, um, he's a Massachusetts guy. So again, two sort of, um, so either Virginia, Massachusetts or Massachusetts, Virginia, that's a lot of your early presidential, um, vice presidential tickets uh, or teams. Uh, um, John Marshall and Joseph Story are going to be a Massachusetts, Virginia team. Uh, John Adams and his Secretary of State, John Marshall, are a Massachusetts, Virginia team. So Massachusetts, Virginia loom very large um, uh, in in uh, the early republic. And now we're on to the uh, last reading of our podcast today. On Wednesday, February 11, 1801, Congress met in the new capital city of Washington in the District of Columbia, to unseal the presidential ballots that had been cast by electors in the several states. Per the Constitution's explicit provisions, the Senate's presiding officer, that is the incumbent vice president, Mike Pence, oh no, excuse me, Thomas (laughs) Jefferson himself, chaired the proceedings. As expected, there was a tie at the top. 73 votes for Jefferson and 73 votes for Burr. The House immediately began balloting by state delegation. House rules said that the House, quote, shall not adjourn until a choice be made, unquote. All through the night and the next morning, the House voted over and over, but neither Jefferson nor Burr could reach the requisite nine states out of 16 total. After 28 continuous rounds of balloting, the exhausted legislators broke off shortly before noon on Thursday to get some sleep. Friday the 13th brought no resolution, nor did Saturday. Still nothing when Congress reconvened on Monday the 16th. Adams's term of office was due to expire on Tuesday, March 3rd, a mere fortnight away. If the impasse continued, would Adams audaciously, illegally, question mark, Hold over past his allotted four years? Or would the lame duck, electorally repudiated Federalist Congress in its final hours ram through a new succession act, a la Horatius, crowning Marshall ex officio as acting president, either in his capacity as Secretary of State or in his new and additional role as America's Chief Justice? He was nominated for this post by President Adams on January 20th and confirmed by the Senate on January 27th. He received his judicial commission on January 31st and took his judicial oath on February 4th. Thus, for the last month of the Adams administration, John Marshall wore both an executive and judicial hat. If Adams or Marshall took steps to act as president on March 4th, would Jeffersonian middle state militias in Virginia and Pennsylvania respond with force 
as threatened? Would they storm the Capitol? No, no, no. Sorry, I'm, I'm just getting confused. Would the self-proclaimed acting president, Adams or Marshall, counter with federal military force? Whom would the federal military salute? Would Federalist New England militias mobilize and march south? Would Hamilton try to jump into the fray? Uh, remember that in the late 1790s, he had been commissioned as a high general, second in command to George Washington, in anticipation of possibly military conflict with France. With the irreplaceable Washington no longer alive to calm the country and rally patriots from all sides to his, from all sides to his Unionist banner, would the American constitutional project ultimately collapse in an orgy of blood and recrimination like so many Greek republics of old and the fledgling French republic of late? These and other dreadful questions darkened the horizon in mid-February. And then, suddenly, as if a strong blast of fresh air abruptly swept the capital city, the impasse ended. On the 36th ballot, on the afternoon of Tuesday, February 17, enough House members changed their minds to swing the election to Jefferson by a vote of 10 states to 4, with the remaining two states professing neutrality. Most historians believe that Jefferson gave certain assurances to fence-sitting Federalists. Jefferson denied having made any promises, but he was a master wordsmith. His carefully crafted statements of intent, as distinct from promises, sufficed. Thus, various Federalists crowned Jefferson with the expectation, confirmed by winks and nods from Jefferson and his authorized intermediaries, that he would govern as a moderate. On March 4, 1801, America's new Chief Justice administered the presidential oath of office to his rival and kinsman to complete the nation's first peaceful question mark, transfer of power. Adams was not there to witness the event. Earlier that day, he had left the capital city on a coach, bound for his family homestead, brooding about what might have been. Wow, well, there's... <laughs> and, of course, you know what that line's all about. Yeah, well, of course. Uh, <laughs> Can um, you spell Trump? Yes, exactly. Um, now, uh, Washington was there for Adams' inauguration, correct? He was indeed, and um, let me read to you and our audience, and again, our audience can read this for themselves if they want, um, a letter that John Adams writes to his beloved Abigail the next day describing this passing of the baton, the, the first um, um, uh, passing of power. Remember, this is four years earlier. This is um, uh, uh, in 1797, because you're asking... Well, what was the precedent for the first transition? Uh, for, uh, for what was the precedent for transition? So the precedent is Washington was there to, to um, uh, observe Adams' inauguration, but Adams wasn't there for Jefferson. Now, of course, Washington had been beaten and humiliated. Right, he wasn't quite lost. He hadn't quite <laughs> lost, so it's not quite the same. But. He's, he's observing the um, swearing-in of his own vice president, although not quite running mate. So this is a letter that John writes to Abigail uh, the next day after John's own inauguration as president. Philadelphia, March 5th, 1797. My dearest friend, your dearest friend never had a more trying day than yesterday. 
A solemn scene it was indeed, and it was made more affecting to me by the presence of the general, as Washington, whose countenance was as serene and unclouded as the day. He seemed to me to enjoy a triumph over me. Methought I heard him think, I, I am fairly out and you are fairly in. See which of us will be happiest. <laughs> when the ceremony was over, he came and made me a visit and cordially congratulated me and wished my administration might be happy, successful, and honorable. So this should be one of the happiest days of John Adams's life. He's been yearning for this forever. He's now finally top dog, universally acknowledged. But he's got some darkness in his soul. He, he, even on this day, he, or, you know, maybe he's just mocking himself a little bit. He's, he's, he, but, but there's this, uh, you, you, you see his, his curmudgeonly cranky, um, if you like him, um, uh, um, charm, uh, you know, cute uh, character uh, shining through here. Uh, it looks like he doesn't want to be a member of a club that would have him for a member. <laughs> So, um, but, but maybe that's just his way of, of deflecting some of the very complex emotions that he must be feeling this day. And of course, he's, he's ridiculously proud of, of his achievement, and, and he's sharing that with his, his one beloved, um, Who's Abigail. Who's not there. Uh, yes, I, I think she's taking care of uh, an, a sick family member. Um, and in fact, uh, David McCullough in his... Uh, uh, biographies, his um, very um, uh, readable and, um, and generous biography of, of John Adams, uh, says the following. Um, For Adams, there was little cheer on this inauguration day. With none of his family present, he felt miserably alone. Um, so apparently not only was um, Abigail not there, I guess some other members of his family uh, weren't there as well. Of course, if you, if you take Adams at his word, which is hard to do, but if you take him at his word in terms of his comments about, his own, about Washington at his own inauguration, um, you know, he perhaps you know, might be wanting to spare uh, Jefferson a similar experience, although I find that, that hard to believe. Uh, I got a quote here about how uh, Adams reacted to, his, uh, to the results of the election. Clearly, uh, Adams was not happy with, uh, with his defeat. Um, he wrote to uh, his son, Thomas, uh, after his electoral defeat, he wrote, My little bark has been overset in a squall of thunder and lightning, and hail attended with a strong smell of sulfur. So, um, the presidency is a very lonely office. We've talked about that. And, um, and Adams is uniquely humiliated to repeat, um, he's the only one of the early presidents who doesn't win re-election. And I hope now our faithful audience members know why, because as we saw in an earlier podcast episode, he brought this on himself to a very great extent uh, because of his um, silliness and uh, effectlessness, uh, his profound lack of judgment in the Sedition Act uh, controversy. And, and that was... a constitutional failing. He didn't understand the deepest, one of the deepest points about the Constitution, which is in a Constitution that's about we, the people of the United States, and about regular, free, and fair elections, people get to criticize the President of the United States, and they can't be put in prison for that. 
And I think it's uh, perhaps premature to say, but if we had to take a guess at what the verdict of history will be about our most recent president, um, I think that whatever, however you stand uh, politically um, in terms of many of the issues, the one big unforeseen issue that confronted Donald Trump, which was the pandemic, um, was that he utterly failed the American people. And even so, he, you know, given the relative closeness of the election, had he uh, borne his defeat nobly, um, who knows what his future might have been. But now I, I personally believe he will not be able to recover from the disgraceful behavior that he engaged in after the election. And as they say, time will tell, um, apart from his COVID failure, um, because I always see things with the, the constitutional angle, the bigger failure that I identified even before his election was that he didn't have a proper appreciation of the role of a free press criticizing not just incumbents, but also criticizing candidates. He was um, uh, uh, basically um, his attitude toward his critics in the press was dangerous, not just from day one, but before day one, before he, before his inauguration. Um, and um, so um, the stories we've been telling about the early presidents are the stories of constitutional triumphs and constitutional failures. John Adams doesn't understand the First Amendment. Thomas Jefferson is not perfect, but he understands the First Amendment better than does Adams. I, uh, Madison understands it best of all, I think. Um, and, 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 it's, and it's not a unique failure of John Adams. Abigail steers him wrong on this uh, as well, and, and Hamilton is basically um, not setting him straight on that. Maybe he's not egging him on, uh, but he's surely not setting him straight on that. And, and that's why the Federalist Party goes bye-bye um, in uh, this period. Uh, we, we don't hear from them again. And of course now, in the immediate aftermath of the release of the words that made us, um, part of the thesis of that book, if I might be so bold, is, is that uh, the American constitutional conversation is crucial to what made us, that America constituted itself through conversation, and the conversation was not only among the founders, but also the American people, the states, state constitutions, newspapers, and so forth. And when you try to abridge that conversation, John Adams or Donald Trump, uh, beware. Well said. Thank you, and we'll be back next week. Thank you.